13. Let's pray, and then we're going to turn into our Bible to Exodus 13. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you who are watching over us at all times. Uh, Lord, we're going to learn tonight, we are much like the Israelites, that we have been freed from slavery. And yet there's a lot of difficulties out there. There's a lot of warring going on, and there's a lot of people trying to hurt us and do things to us. There's a lot of problems with sin in the world, Lord. But the thing you don't want us going back is back to that old way of life. You want us pressing on. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we press on. And even in these unique, challenging circumstances we've been in as a church and a, and a state and a country, Lord, we want to press on. We want to excel more. We want to be more like Christ. And so we pray that through this message tonight, as we look at the nation of Israel, as they're exiting Egypt, with all of the challenges, Lord, that we too would learn that we have exited a certain world. We've left a slavery world, a slave of sin behind us. So help us understand that tonight as we study your word, and may uh, we find great application to the truth in our own lives, Lord. Father, thank you for being with us. Thank you for all... Uh, you've done for us and how you protect us uh, and watch over us. You are a good God. You're a great God. And you've made us in your image. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we turn to Exodus chapter 13 in your Bibles, I would encourage you to follow along verse by verse in this text as, a, as is our custom of teaching uh, ex- expositionally through, the, through a text but because it is a fascinating text I entitled the sermon Remembering Our Great God and Savior in a Post-Slavery World now I am not talking that there's no slavery left in the world I am talking about a post-slavery for believers uh, we have a post-slavery world behind us uh, everyone was born into sin everyone was a slave to sin enslaved the Bible says we were to sin So all of us have a post-slavery experience. And so I wrote this title because I think it highlights what this text is about. How how God has pulled his people away and taken uh, out of the chains of slavery and moved them away. And yet there is great challenges. I enjoy um, particularly early American history and, and have watched many documentaries and read books and just enjoyed um, the Wild West and a lot of things. But in that, of course, you're going to get into slavery and the Civil War and all the things that went on. One of the great challenges for the slaves is when they were given freedom in the 1860s after the Civil War, there was so many things that they had to get over, so many hurdles in their way. There were people after them, people who hated them, people who wouldn't give them work, people that wanted to destroy them. They had so many challenges to do, uh, to to get through. Uh, And and when you study that, you realize those are difficult times. And, And yet, let's make a parallel to Christianity. There's a time when God calls us out of Christian calls us out of the world into Christianity. He, he says, no longer will Satan be your father. No longer are you enslaved to sin. You are mine. The chains are free. We sing songs like this all the time, and we walk out of that. And yet, there's, there's great difficulty at times. We, we have great challenges as we go through these things. I was reading, I'm reading through the book of Acts right now in my own personal reading. Um, and I was reading in Acts 14 the other day, verse 21 through 22, and the Bible says this, uh, uh, Paul had been preaching the gospel, and, 
and great things have happened, and, and yet there was great difficulty. He was in Lystra, and there they stoned him. I don't know if you remember that passage. Um, somewhere around verse 20 or so. They left him for dead. And then the disciples came and stood around him. But the Bible says he got up. And then he says this, and he says, after they had preached the gospel, he just started preaching again. This is, this is Apostle Paul, right? He, and after they had preached the gospel to that city, and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra, that's where he was actually stoned, to Iconium, and to Antioch. And then verse 22, listen to this. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand, the Christian life is not a cakewalk. And Paul knew that. He knew there were people that hated Christianity, hated the Christ that hung on a cross. They knew they hated him and the message. He knew they hated him and the message that he preached. And so he said many tribulations uh, we must go through in order to enter the kingdom of God. When, when Paul was saved, you remember on Acts chapter 9, to go back a few chapters, there he's on the road to Damascus. He's riding his steed and this bright light hits him and Christ reveals himself to him, of course, and and uh, you know he says, who are you? And I'm, I'm the Lord. Why do you kick against the goads and all that? As Ananias takes him in to uh, relieve him and give him back his sight, uh, uh, he's scared of Paul, he, or Saul at that time. He, he knew who he was. And, but God told Ananias this in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Suffering comes with freedom. I know that sounds uh, a, a little bit oxymoron type thinking. It, but suffering comes with freedom. Think about all the passages in the Bible dedicated to suffering for a Christian who suffers and how to suffer and how to go through suffering. It's part of what we, we take on when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow his example. Peter said to follow his example in the whole context of suffering. So this comes with bearing a cross. If you're going to pick up a cross and follow Christ, you're going to suffer. And there's lots of things that come away. And I think we should be careful. We should never tell people that if you follow Christ and you're released from the slavery of sin, that you're, you're going to have a life of ease. In fact, in many cases, it's more difficult. You're so much more aware of sin. Now Satan, who was your father, is now your enemy. Um, your own flesh now is reacting completely different to the work of the Spirit and the Word of God. And so there's new challenges. But following Christ is a wholehearted departure from the land of slavery. We have to realize that. A uh, follower of Jesus Christ, a true born-again believer, leaves that land behind him and follows the Lord even though it may be difficult. Well, in tonight's passage, we will hear some key truths that God gave to the nation of Israel to help them remember their great God and Savior and how not to return to the works of slavery. And he gives a great antidote, and I think it's so applicable for us as we live this life, and particularly even in these trying times. So as, as we, too, journey along to the promised land, we have a promised land, it's called heaven, um, there's great application here. So let's look at just three thoughts tonight in this passage of Exodus chapter 13 commemorating the day of our deliverance commemorating the day of our deliverance well 
chapter 13 is divided into several sections. You'll see as we go through this. In verses 1 through 16, there are several things in there that are to be brought out. It is, it is the command to the Israelites to remember the Passover, to remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're to remember that they were delivered from Egypt, and they were to dedicate the firstborn to God. And that's, that's all in this commemorating. And they're, they're challenged, they're commanded to commemorate this. When you get into verse 17 through 22, you'll pick up the narrative of Israel exiting uh, Egypt and all the challenges there as well. But God uses our remembrance. That's what he uses to bring worship to us. And he uses our remembrance of the great things that he has done to spark worship in him. And, and really, this is the goal of this passage, to remember the great things of God, to, to create worship in you so you don't fail, so you don't go backwards, that you keep moving forward to the promised land that God has in heaven for us. Now, and notice in, in verses three and four, uh, the, the instructions that are there. Remember this day, this day. Notice that, verse four, starting at verse four. On this day, you can see how important this is to God. He wants this day remembered. And he's marking it on their calendar. He's marking it with a feast. And he's marking it with a remembrance so that they will not forget. I hope there's things in your life, particularly how about your salvation? Um, some of us maybe know the day we were saved. Maybe some uh, know that area we were saved in, that time. Uh, that should be marked in our lives. That's the time God freed us. Chains fell off. We walked out of Egypt in a sense. Um, and we followed God into the, to the promised land. And so this is, a, this is an important thing. And you can see without a doubt, it's important to God. Mark this. This day, this day, remember it. Write it down. So God desires we remember what he has done. That's the habit of the, Old, of the New Testament as well. Tons of passages. Um, if you go to somewhere like um, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, it'll say, for we once were... So the Bible uses that all the time. Remember where we used to be and what God has done. In fact, this passage is great. I actually put it in my notes. For we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. And then listen to this phrase. Boy, does this verse hook up with Exodus. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Spending our life um, in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You can, that's, that's the captivity now, now, we're not saying Israel was in sin because they were slaves, but, but the analogy is there um, that he's showing out the Old Testament is God goes in, gets enslaved people, and brings them out. And he wants, us to, he wants us to remember what he did in the past. So he wants the nation to remember, and he wants us to remember. Paul uses this all the time. Remember when? This used to be. Remember this. He does that to draw our attention back to the great works of God over and over and over and then all of a sudden in verse 4 he says, but when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. So never forget where you've come from. Never forget what God brought you from. Never forget what you were born into and what you truly deserve. We, we deserve death. And yet God has given us freedom. It also is clearly indicated that Moses was speaking to the people um, almost immediately. As he looked back at our text here, um, verse one says, then the Lord spoke to Moses. So there's an immediate conversation. These people are leaving, they're leaving Egypt, they're exiting, and God wants Moses to talk to them 
for him right away. And I think it is most important um, that we understand that God had them traveling in difficult circumstances, but he wanted them to have a right view of him. If you're going to go through this life and, and go through difficulties, uh, even just take these last weeks that we've gone through the difficulties with it, if you don't have a right view of God, that's going to get exposed during those times. Uh, we, we wonder how all of the churches, many of you we've talked to and you, you seem to be doing well, but if you don't have a right view of God and you're going through difficulties, can you imagine what's going to happen to you? So as God is leading them, as they're traveling out, he wants them to have a right view of him. What happened? Who released them? How that took place? Don't forget these things. And so they are to recognize what he has done and to live in obedience. The mention of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a, was a message of encouragement to help them as they had this mass exodus and hardship of leaving Egypt. He wants them to remember, and he's going to talk about that in this text as well. And then God did not want them to doubt what he had done. God does not, he's not a God of doubt. And I know Christians go through doubt at times, but God, that's not of God. God doesn't want people to doubt, and he didn't want the nation to doubt. And he wanted them to know that he had a future for them, that he had given them a promised land. And you're going to hear that over and over. This is my plan. I have set this in order. And so... He leads them to it. Look at verse 1 with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Well, just quickly here. Moses was the Lord's anointed mediator. In the words of the divine spokesman um, here, for, was really Moses steps into that authoritative role. They're no less than God's word. So Moses is going to speak here, but, but he's speaking on behalf of God. He's God's divine spokesman at this point. And so all these words that are spoken come through the mouth of Moses, but it's God speaking to us through his word. Look at verse 2 with me. Sanctify to me every firstborn, the, first, the firstborn of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Now, Moses is going to return to this subject in verses 11 through 16 of this firstborn. It's very interesting, but, but he's just highlighting this, and then he's going to come back. But I think the point here is that God has sovereign right to do whatever he wants. Notice that he says at the end of the verse, all the firstborn, both man and beast, belong to me. It's a statement of his sovereignty. It's a statement of his position. He's creator, owner, author, has all the authority. These things belong to me. But he had, he had protected, think about it, he had protected the firstborn through the blood of the lamb. And now he desires that the nation set that firstborn apart. And we'll talk about why in just a little bit. But this was to be done immediately. So that's why it's early in this text. Immediately. He wanted this done immediately so that it would bring remembrance. Look with me at verses 3 through, three through 10. Let me read that part of the text and we'll move our way through it. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of this place and nothing leaven shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Abed, you are, to go, you, you are about to go forth. It shall be written, excuse me, it shall, it shall be when the Lord brings you out of the land of the Can- to the Can- land of Canaanites, to the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to our fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. 
unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all of your borders. You shall tell your sons on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall, ser- and it shall serve as a sign to you and on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance as, a, uh, as an appointed time from year to year. So here he commemorates this Passover, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, they really became one as they got into the land. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread became really one festival and feast that they worshiped together. Um, But God's people often forgot what he has done. And it isn't hard to, to kind of see that as we study Israel going on. They will soon forget what God has done. It will not be long. In fact, in the next couple chapters as we get into the crossing of the Red Sea, you will see them wanting to turn back, forgetting the power of God. And God's people often do this. We, we fall into the trap of what have you done late me for me? As though God is some kind of God and a Jesus in a genie bottle type thing. That's, that's not who our God is. And, and we honor him. And, and yet so often today in the prosperity gospel movement, the way God is treated as though he owes him something. And so there's a reminder here to remember what God has done. If not, you will become extremely selfish people. And that's, of course, what the nation does. And that's, of course, what many Christians fall into. Selfishness because they forget what God has done. So Moses was instructing the people, don't forget. Notice in verse 3, he says, remember this day. Remember this day. Um, and it, and it's, a, it's a day that the, the Lord does not want them to quickly forget. But he wants them to remember several things about it. It's a day that you came out of Egypt. It's a day you were freed from slavery, notice. And it's a day where the powerful hand of God did its work. This is why they were to remember um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to remember not just, hey, oh, we're going to eat bread without leaven in it. No, no. You are to remember, I brought you out of slavery by my powerful hand. And so this was not just some kind of uh, party they were to have. It was a worship service for seven days. For seven days they were to do that. Now, notice leaven. We've talked about this before. Leaven uh, is, has an equality to sin um, in the spiritual realm. So uh, he's dealing with sin here. And, and the amazing works of God in our life cause us, not to, uh, cause us to desire to remove sin, right? And, and when we forget what God has done, we allow sin to come in. So, so the remembrance of what God has done, what he's doing here, is to help them deal with sin and to worship God. Now, the amazing works of God in our life uh, cause us to sweep out the leaven. We, we go through the house, in a sense, and we make sure there is no leaven there. Um, and the removal of that leaven tells us we can do it because God has paid for those sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have the ability to cleanse sin from our lives through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning we can re- confess that sin and repent of it. That's what we should be doing often. But here, there to re- the, the nation was to do this every year. Um, sin causes you to forget what he's done and forgets, causes you to forget what 
God did on slavery. Um, in Galatians chapter 5, I don't have time quite to turn there, but um, there uh, Paul has been working hard to help people understand that they've turned, what caused them to turn away from the truth of the gospel. Um, when, when, you, when you study that text, Paul had come into southern Galatia and he taught this tremendous gospel, right? And, and tons of people had believed. But what came in behind them were people teaching works. And, and so Paul comes back and says this. Who caused you to, to turn away from your freedom? Who caused you to turn back? You can read this text, and, and he's talking about circumcision and other works of uh, law of Moses to try to gain favor in God, and, and he, he's, he's rejecting that. That's, that's not the way you come. And, and, and who's causing you to turn back to slavery? The terms are very equal to what we see in this text. And yet, he reminds them that the freedom that you have is in Christ alone, turning from that and leaving sin. Now, as we look back at our text, notice that this remembrance was to be done on a day. It's marked on this day in the month of Abid. You're to go forth. So there was a day. It was a particular date. And then verse 5, it, 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 it shall be done when the Lord brings you to the land of Canaan and Hittites and Amorites and Hittite uh, and Jezebusites. Now, I think this is fascinating because he's saying, look, I, I'm just not getting you out of out of Egypt, I'm getting you out of, uh, out of this land of slavery and bringing you into a land I promised you. Um, there's so much detail in here. Did the, even did the uh, Israelites even know who these nations were at that time? They had been enslaved for so many years. And here he's rattling off a nation after nation that he is going to have victory over and run them out and give them their land. A land flowing with milk and honey. So there's, uh, what I love about this in verse five is there is God says this is what's going to happen. There, there's no, there's no guess to this. There's 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 nothing but belief by and God just saying this is what I'm going to do with you. Notice verse six, for seven days you'll see eat of unleavened bread and on the seventh day, you should be a feast to the Lord. Um, and. and so Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were these seven days, and it was a time where no leaven um, was to be in the nation. It was to be swept out of the houses. They were to go through. They were to deal with it. Uh, it was meant to be a time of great repentance. Uh, later on, the, the feast just turned to parties and uh, problems, uh, but that was not what God designed it for. If you, if you really want to understand and know God, let me, let me just stop here for a second and we think about this. If you really want to understand and know God, confess and repent from sin. Confess and repent from sin. Um, what happens to the nation is they do not confess sin. They, they begin to move more into it, not repent of it. And pretty soon their view of God changes. And that's what happens to Christians uh, sometimes we we get into sin we won't repent of those sins uh, we we stay in them we have bad relationships we we don't take care of those and our view of God begins to change wrongly it begins to change and so and the idea if we take eleven into our life is to sweep those things out have a desire to know God to know who He is and God will continue to be glorious to us. If you really want to experience close communion with God, confess and repent sin. Many 
I think, enjoy communion services. I think we saw that even this Sunday. Um, uh, I think one of the reasons why people enjoy communion services around the Lord's table is they take, they finally slow down enough to talk to the Lord. Now, I don't think that should be the practice every time you come. I, I think that should be something daily we do with the Lord, be right with the Lord daily, confess our sins and turn from them. But I think some of the sweetest times having a communion service is because the people slow down. And, and right there, as they have the bread and the cup, they begin to think about the leaven in their life at times. They think about what God did. They think about his son coming and dying. And they think about their sin. And there, God often deals with people. Um, and again, I don't think that's a practice that we should fall into that. That's the only place we deal with God. But a lot of times it's very sweet because we're reminded of the great work of God. Now, now make the connection there. In Egypt, um, that was where they were in slavery. So, so he wanted the nation to remember what God did, that he brought them out with his powerful hand. You and I, and, and I don't think there's a direct correlation here. I know some people make this. But when we come to the communion table, we sit down and we go, I remember what Jesus did for me. I remember he hung on a cross for me. When we start to wrestle with that remembrance, when we start to uh, think about and meditate and study the text, what Christ did on the cross and what he accomplished on the cross, oh, do we start to have joy again and a sweet closeness with God. And there's a time where, you know, when you're not walking with God, you feel very separate from him at times. He hasn't left you, but sin has made you feel alone. Sin has made you feel isolated. You want that to go away if you're a Christian? Repent and walk with the Lord and remember that he saved you and you've turned from your sins. Look at verse 8 with me. Um, verse 7 is really what I was highlighting that it shouldn't be in any of your borders they wanted it completely out verse 8 you shall tell your sons on that day saying it, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt well this is a precious passage it's really about telling the next generation isn't it notice it starts notice verse 8 it says um, you shall tell uh, I looked that up I was interested to see if that was um, a national or that was uh, individual. So was it plural or was it singular? Well, it's singular. So here's what I think Moses is telling, um, telling the nation is you, meaning your individual house. Uh, this is what this is for. And so you're to turn to your son. You're to turn to your children on that day. On that day when you celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when you celebrate the Passover, when, when you realize what God has done, you are to tell your children that. You're to tell, him, uh, tell them how great uh, God is and what he did for you. Um, and this is the idea of teaching children the greatness of God, teaching the next generation. Um, moms and dads that are listening out there, um, it is not the church's responsibility uh, solely to tell your children of the greatness of God. In fact, we will not stand account for your children, I don't believe. You will. And I believe that it's, that's such an important point. And, and so we see that here in the Old Testament with the nation, but I think that's what we teach our children. We are responsible to teach our children. And some of you, grandparents, you have the responsibility. Uh, maybe you, your children are not saved, and you have opportunity with your, with your grandchildren 
tell them of the great works of God. That's, that's the great blessing of being a parent, a grandparent, to tell them. This moves it to the next generation. They were to tell them about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that it was a time of sweeping out leaven and to help them understand what that meant, and to deal with sin, to have a clean heart before the Lord. And teaching children the greatness of God brought worship. But if it isn't done, what happens is battles of selfishness arise. Children do not desire church. They do not desire Sunday school. They do not desire the things of God because they never hear that at home. They never hear that reinforced. That's not taught to them in a loving, biblical way. And so pretty soon there's desires for selfishness. Exactly what happened to the nation. As the nation went on, selfishness began to grow. We have passages where Joshua and the elders pass away And the Bible says when that generation passed away, the next generation turned from God. Someone did not pass the greatness of God down. And the nation was plunged into judgment. And there you find the book of Judges. And 13 judges are, are risen up to deal with huge problems, idolistic problems that are in the nation. If you want your children to fall into idolatry of something, don't teach them the greatness of God. And that's where they'll go. Greatness of God protects us from idolatry. Verse number nine, look at this. And it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Well, the law of the Lord was not intended for just some uh, merely physical outward observance right later the pharisees were known for wearing phylacteries all over them and of course jesus did not condemn the practice of wearing the phylacteries or or even tassels or anything like that that was in the law but he condemned the hypocritical way they did it it was all outward it was had nothing to do with their hearts why he said the greatest command was to love the lord of god with all your heart your soul your mind your strength because they were loving him trying to love god with his outside and so, so I don't think this, that's what this verse is talking about. I think it's talking about celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and these particular instructions for the people and their children um, in a way that would be a mark on them. They were marked by the great things of God. I think that's what he's talking about. Let this mark you. I, I hope that your salvation has marked you. And if you get squeezed and somebody wants to know what God has done, it just comes out. I think that's what he's after. That's what the law was after here. It was after this this marking of the law on them, the truth of God, the greatness of God, instead of some kind of outward signs. See, carrying out this act of remembrance would tell their family and everyone around them that God gets all the glory for delivering them from slavery. And that's, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's what we tell God gets the glory for bringing us out of slavery. Um, I, I think it also indicates a lifestyle that's so saturated with pleasing the Lord in every corner of our life. And so I've learned so much studying on this Feast of Unleavened Bread. They, they went through everything from border to border in the nation. And, and within the border, it broke down into, into different lands, Ephraim and Manasseh and so forth. And then it went from down to households. And so each household went through and swept out, cleaned out, made sure there was no leaven in their, in their house. Can you imagine the church of the Lord Jesus Christ if people regularly 
swept out sin by the grace of God out of our life. Just didn't let it stay. Dealt with sin on the spot. Every one of us. Can you imagine what church would be like? What relationships would be like? What marriage would be like? What parenting would be like? What leadership would look be like? Oh, it would be incredible to see what that would be like. Look at verse 10. Therefore, you should keep this ordinance in its appointed time from year to year. Well, in this way, the reality of what the Lord had done would continue to live on in the memory of the next generation and all those who loved him. For the New Testament church, we, we see these principles just applied often at the table and at baptism. People stand regularly and remind us of the great things of God. Sunday was so sweet because uh, the elders worked hard to instruct people to be ready to take communion at home. And we heard so many wonderful stories that things went well there. Great conversations happened. And, and what it was so special is there for a moment, I stood on that stage and you watched and I talked about the great things of God. Particularly the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ how he purchased our lives and brought us out of the slavery of sin. We talked about that for a moment. We talked about his body and his blood. We remembered the great work of God, and we worshiped. When we have baptisms, and our baptismal just over to my right here, um, we've had so many these last few years where men and women, young and old, have stood in the baptism waters and gave testimony of the great work of God. And it caused us to worship, didn't it? And so that's the idea of this text. That's the idea of the, the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. That's the idea of telling the next generation so that we never forget what God has done as we continue to work our way to the promised land of heaven. Second thought. The first life was given as an act of gratitude. The first life was given as an act of gratitude. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Now when the Lord brings you to the land of Canaan as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you. You shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every room, the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. Well again, this command is given through the encouraging promise of a land God was gonna give them. Notice that when you come to the land of Canaan, so this promised land is back in the center of this. Do this when you come to the land. Verse 12, we see the key is the firstborn male. And of course, that's going to be tied to Christ and so forth. We'll see that in a moment. But many cultures saw the firstborn as a very significant child. Um, and this was true in Israel as well. Uh, but with far greater reason. See, God spared Israel's firstborn through the blood of the Lamb. And God was the giver of life. He sustained life, protected life, and he is the giver of life. And so the first life was to be specially consecrated to him as a token of worship. Um, I think this highlights God as creator, the giver of life. Um, it also, it is, it's God who protects the next generation. He did that. Can you imagine Egypt, what Egypt lost in the, in the death of their firstborn? a whole generation disappeared. God protected that with the nation of Israel by, by the blood that was on the doorpost. So God is this God of protector of life. And, and so he, he wants this consecration 
uh, to be done to acknowledge what God did in bringing him out. So here's another thing. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, that was to acknowledge that God brought them out of slavery. Now he takes the firstborn and he's doing the same thing. Take the firstborn, acknowledge what I did. Now there's some interesting passages that happen here. Look at verse 13 with me. This is a very interesting verse. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of, mom, of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, the donkey is an interesting animal. He was under the unclean category. And he was probably singled out because he was called what, what they called as a beast of burden, meaning he was a pack animal. He packed everybody's stuff. Doubtlessly, there were many donkeys with them as they carried their belongings out of Egypt. Um, this was a, a very valuable animal. And instead of killing it, um, he could be rescued with the cost of a lamb. You could see that. So this lamb would rescue a donkey. And believe me, there's a lot of things that go through my mind that I probably can't say on TV um, when you think about that. Um, we being the donkeys. Uh, so you can, you can fill in the blanks there if you want. Um, but what a precious thing. So this, this donkey, who's this beast of burden, he's, he's unclean. He, he can't, he, he can't be eaten or, or sacrificed or anything like that. He's unclean. He can be redeemed. And I think part of this is just the graciousness of God. God was telling them, look, I know you need these animals, and you're able to redeem this donkey with the death of a lamb. Well, clearly God is not telling the Israelites to, to sacrifice their firstborn because he goes on and then says that um, you're to break the neck of this donkey. But then he says, every firstborn of man among you your son shall be redeemed. So God is not telling Israel to sacrifice the firstborn, although that was done in a lot of the pagan cultures, and then Israel fell into that as well, worshiping Baal and burning their children, particularly their firstborn. Uh, and that was why they went to judgment um, for doing that. But, but this was something God wanted to do. Now let me give you just an example where you can think. Remember Hannah. Hannah goes up to the feast. Um, she's weeping before the Lord. Now, it also helps you set the scene as you get into 1 Samuel there and you begin to realize uh, what's going on. Hannah is weeping before the Lord um, and Eli comes and says, re really rebukes her because he thinks she's drunk. Now, what does that tell you about how the nation of Israel was already handling the feast? That drunkenness and, and mishandling the things of God was going on. The, the priest assumed she was drunk because he had seen it probably so often. But Hannah was not there for that reason. Hannah was there because she wanted a firstborn. And there you remember the beautiful story. She says, Lord, if you give me a, a firstborn, I will dedicate it. Now, a lot of people go, wow, wasn't that incredible what Hannah did? Well, that's what they were all supposed to do. They were all supposed to give, offer to the Lord the firstborn. Now, he didn't make every firstborn a priest. He didn't take every firstborn and put them into servitude of some sort. But he did take some of them. Hannah was obeying this command. And that's why God honored and loved Hannah for what she did. And it's a beautiful testimony. But they were to be offered to God. And, and so this, this whole section here, I've been asked, even my son asked me not too long ago, um, why does the Bible talk about the firstborn in this passage? And I was talking with Caleb about this because his firstborn son is coming. And, and, and the answer is, God wanted you to offer him and say, God, whatever you want to do with this firstborn, 
I will, I will follow your will. And it's a precious principle, and I think there's certainly understanding that we should do the same thing. In fact, we should do it with all of our children today. I, think, I know we did. We dedicated our children to the Lord, you, and, you, and you set your heart on pointing them towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 14 and 15. And it shall be when your sons ask you in the time to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to them, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the firstborn of every womb, but every firstborn of my son I redeem. What I love about this verse is it's, it's giving parents instructions here to the nation. When the children ask, why are we doing this, Dad? Why are we sacrificing a lamb to save this firstborn donkey? Or, or, or why, is, why was um, my older brother dedicated to the Lord? When children ask, they were to tell them, we do this because God rescued us out of slavery. Now, parents, I can't think of a greater reason for you to bring your kids to church and to, um, to raise them and, and, and bring them up in the ways of God at home and church and, and, and everywhere you go because God brought you out of slavery. And so they were to tell them then. They, they would say something like this, Son, this is an act of worship to our God who did what we could not do. We were slaves. We had no ability to free ourselves. And God brought us out. So this is an act of worship. That's, that should be right on our mouths. Dad, why, why do we go to church? Dad, why do we not do some of the things the rest of the world does? It should come freely out of us. It, at that point, we'd say, because we were slaves, son. We were slaves to sin. And God rescued your mother and I. We deserved hell's punishment. We deserved death because the wages of sin is death, but God saved us. And so he's now given us a motivation to love him and serve him and obey him. You can see, see how, the coral, the, how it correlates. Uh, for us, it's the gospel. For them, they look back at the at this great statement of deliverance that God made. Notice when the children asked, they were to immediately refer to the work that God did in Egypt. They were to immediately turn back to that. And what a great reminder when our children ask. We are to immediately turn back. I think there's also a great connection between God's son there, isn't it? Um, it it's the firstborn because Israel was called God's firstborn. But then he redeems us with his own firstborn, in a sense, though Jesus was not born. But um, it is his son that redeems us. And there's this great connection, and we keep going back to that. When asked, we go back. So it would be his work that captures our ministry, our, our, excuse me, captures our memory when we think about it, and we pass that on to the next generation. Look at verse 16 with me. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand, and as flackeries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The redemption of the firstborn was to function very similar as the Feast of Unleavened Bed, to remind them of the powerful hand of God. I think one more thought on this, and then our last point was 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread was done once a year on the first of Abib, right? But God wanted more worship than that. So he takes this, and this is where this is so key, and, and maybe you first-time dads, uh, my son Caleb, I could talk to you about this. Um, everything that's firstborn, he wanted them to be triggered in their memory what he did for them. So every time there was something born, a, a kitten, a dog, a, a, a donkey, a, a lamb, a child, every time they were to remember the great works of God. And I think that's precious. And, and when we think about that, it's not just once a year. That, that, he wanted them, yes, Feast of Unleavened Bread was to remind them of the powerful hand of God bringing them out. But every time there was a firstborn, man or beast, they were to be reminded of the great works of God. So you can see what he was doing. He was establishing year-round remembrance of what he, was, what he had done for them. I, I think that's a beautiful thing. And so we begin to boast in the Lord. We boast in him for what he has done. Last thought, the difficulty of life after slavery. Well, look at these last set of verses with me. It's, it's here where the story of the Israelites now, and we're gonna pick up speed now because we'll get back into the narrative of them moving uh, towards the land of promise. But um, it's here where the story, the narrative picks up the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, and, and here it resumes. And so we, we quickly see that there was calamity in their new outside life, right? This outside of slavery had some calamity to it, right? Um, and we're going to see here as they're moving along, there's warring people in their path. Um, they are not necessarily prepared for war. There's problems coming, right? Um, they'll need God to hem them in and protect them both behind them and in front of them. And soon, Pharaoh is going to awaken, and he's going to go after what he thinks still belongs to him, figuring out his workforce is gone, and he will come roaring back. And uh, so as we look at these last just few verses real quickly, I want you to think about this application as we go into it. When God removes us from slavery, life is not always perfect, right? We're perfectly saved, but now we have difficulties. We are awakened to the power of sin, before you were saved, you did not understand the power of sin. And, and, and now you're awakened to your frailty and your weak, 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 weakness. You know that you can stumble now. As a Christian, you go, wow, I, I'm very much aware of my sin. I'm aware of how weak I am, how dependent. These things become issues that we have to turn to the Lord. We can fall prey uh, to people. We can fall prey to the fear of vulnerability. We can fall into fear. I think a lot of Christians have fallen into probably the sin of fear through through this pandemic may, they've they've maybe not trusted the lord like they should have and this this gets awakened to us as christians and so there's a great connection here the world and satan are after you now you know before you were saved satan wasn't worried about you <laughs> you were doing his will now he, he now he hates you and he wants to stop you and so all of these things come along once we find our freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at 17 and 18 with me. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by the way of the, of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in, um, uh, what's that word? Marshall, 
is that it? Martial array. I was trying to pronounce it a different way. Um, from the land of Egypt. So here we begin to see that they take this route, and um, this route is really a little bit difficult to, to completely understand. Numbers chapter 33 gives, gives a more accurate, but even there, there's some places that don't exist anymore. Uh, and so there, when you look in the back of your Bible, there will be different Bibles that have different routes. They're close, but they're a little different. But Numbers 33 gives a pretty good idea of where they were going. But here's what I want you to know. There was a direct route to Canaan, but it had somebody in the way. It had these people that Moses called the Philistines. They really weren't titled that at that time, but by the time Moses wrote the book, they were called that. They were referred to as people of the sea. They lived along that sea, and they were warring tribes. They were warring groups of people. Um, They weren't afraid of Egypt because Egypt was a superpower and would crush them. But here comes this worn-out group of ex-slaves, not ready for war. And so what God does is he does an amazing thing. I, and I believe what the God's word is saying here is he's, he's not saying that he was afraid that they would go, that they would go back to Egypt. What he, what he didn't want them doing was turning back to Egypt for their strength. And so that's the idea of the wording that comes across in English, maybe a little different than Hebrew. But, but there he says, I, I don't want them to turn back to what they came from. That has no rescue for them. That has no promise for them. That has no land. That has no God for them. He did not want them to turn back that. He wanted to be their provider, their protector. And no one could oppose his power. So, uh, so this is a problem. Here's this new people freed from slavery. And they have obstacles in their way. This martial array here. Uh, was not so much a military. A lot of people thought they were already ready to fight. I, I don't believe that's what it means. I think they were just very organized. You got two million plus people coming out of Egypt. Um, doubtlessly, the elders assembled them in a, in a way to walk out, a way that per, kind of protected them in a lot of ways as they came out um, and they're marching along. But notice in verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel, that's Joseph, uh, of Israel solemnly swear saying God will surely take you take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here and so here's this group they're a bunch of slaves a little ratted and tatted as they come out but with them they have the bones of Joseph and Joseph said look take I believe what God said I believe what he told my my father and my grandfather and my great grandfather that he had a land for us he had a promise for us and so take my bones when you go. All the other patriarchs were buried in the, in the caves at Ekron there, um, which would be modern-day Palestine. Um, they were already buried there, and, and that was in the land of Canaan. So Joseph says, look, God's going to do what he said. He promised to do it. He's coming. Look at verse 20 through 22 as we end. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them in the pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar by night and to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Well, these verses teach us that the Israelites' flight from Egypt was not in full panic or confusion. God had them in a raid in order, and he had him hemmed in. He was leading them. He was with them. And though 
um, there are many places mentioned in the book of Exodus that no longer exist. God was guiding them along this path. He knew where he wanted to take them. Uh, I think sometimes when I read this, especially when I was younger, I thought there was a pillar of fire and there was a cloud. I thought they were two different things, but I don't believe that anymore. I think it was just one. I think the cloud by day was glowing with the reflection of God, but it was more dimmer because of the the light that was out. But at night, they saw the full glory of God in that cloud. Uh, much like when the angels come from the glory of God, they could see that. And it's really the presence of God with them. And so that led them through. And you can just see the graciousness of God bringing this, this tattered group of people out and protecting them and leading them around difficult issues. We believe that the Lord was with them. And he's with us as he takes us out. Well, in closing, just let me challenge you in a few thoughts. Where can we give glory to God for his unknown protection? Nation of Israel's coming out. They don't know where they're going. Uh, they, they, they're just following this cloud. And, and I, I couldn't help but think about this as I finished the sermon out today. I thought, Lord, how many times have we gone somewhere where you led us that we didn't understand where you were go- we were going, and yet you got us there? You protected us. And is there areas in your life that you can give glory to God that you can say, Lord, you protected me during unknown times. I didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know how things were gonna turn out. How did you protect me? Can you give glory to God because he will always be with you? He'll always be with you. One of the things that we see with this gracious God, even in the sinfulness of Israel, is he doesn't leave them. He's very faithful to us. Can you give glory to God that he not only pulled you out of slavery, but he has not forsaken you? Can we give God credit for directing our path in a world full of strangers? We really are strangers here. Peter says we're aliens, strangers in this world. We should act like that. Do we give God credit for taking us through these things? Um, I had a real good friend. He's an older man who passed away about 10 years ago his name was Keith Ward he was about 7 foot tall and he was an evangelist Uh, Keith would tell us and I I, I trained underneath him a little bit um, and he he would say his own personal conviction he didn't put this on anybody else but he believed that he didn't want to own anything in this world because he was a stranger here and and I remember asking questions well do you own your car he goes no I, I lease my car do you own your furniture? No, I have a rent to own on it. I rent my house. It was just his personal conviction because he said, he, this is what his belief, he was a gentle giant of a man but could preach the gospel so clearly. Um, he would say, I, I'm not here. This is not my home. This was his conviction. I don't own anything. And one day he came home from witnessing on the streets and sharing the gospel and he sat down in his rented chair and his wife went to get him a plate of food and she came back and he was gone. He had passed away. And she said he died in a rented house, in a rented chair, because this wasn't his home. I have no problem owning a home. My wife and I own a home, and we make payments on that home. But I love that thought. Don't hold on to stuff here. God has a promised land, and and you're going to see where this nation wants to turn back. Oh, weren't the graves good enough in Egypt? Oh, the fish and the leeks and all that we had there. They're going to want to turn back and... Don't fall into that trap. Remember the great works of God. He has a promised land for you. Will you allow him to direct you all the way to the promised land, heaven?
Will you follow him? Uh, I love these stories. They teach us so much practical truth about following God and remembering his greatness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you that you give us great illustrations. For the nation, it was feast and the concentration, uh, consecration of the firstborn. All those were to remind them day after day, feast after feast of the great work of God. Lord, for us, we have the memory of your salvation of us. We have the remembrance that Jesus Christ died on a cross to take our sins away so that we can go to the promised land with you, so that we can be in heaven with you for eternity, so we can bask and worship you for all of eternity. What a great remembrance that is, Lord. And Lord, that helps us deal with sin. It's time to, um, for maybe many of us to sweep the house out again. Maybe it's time for us to go through the nooks and crannies of our life and deal with sin, repent, confess, turn away from that, Lord. And again, see the greatness of God. So Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction to all of us in those areas of our life. Lord, thanks for this time together. Thanks for your Bible. Thanks for the word. We enjoy it so much, Lord. Be with our church, Lord. Give us strength as we start to process the uh, slow and and maybe a little bit tedious process of coming back together. Um, Give us patience with one another. Give us extreme love for one another. Uh, Help us to be considerate of others, Lord. Um, But bless us bless the gathering of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.